Your health is our priority. Each series, it's our goal to make sure that we provide you with experts and guests that offer multiple perspectives so that you feel supported, empowered, and less alone. Like the work we do? Buy us a cup of coffee. Or tea. You can leave us a tip over at coffee.com slash the hip podcast, which is ko-fi.com slash the HIP podcast, or with the link in our show notes. When you buy us a cup of coffee, you not only support the work we do, but also gain access to early releases and downloadable resources. Again, that's coffee.com slash the hip podcast. Hello and welcome to Health It's Personal. Today we had a very special conversation with Dr. Mark Leanderis, founder, medical director, and partner in reproductive endocrinology at Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut and gay parents-to-be. He is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. His daily experience with patients from all walks of life and with unique hurdles and dreams And along with his own experience with family planning, we knew he would be the perfect person to dive into the topic of reproductive health and infertility with sensitivity, insight, and optimism. This was a really incredible chat, and I really loved how considerate and holistic he is with his approach to patient care. Yeah, I also loved how sensitive he was with his word choice, as language, just like culture, is alive and always shifting, and I guess the science is too. So he said things like those born with ovaries or testicles, and that's just so much more inclusive as it shows just how far we've really come. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with his holistic approach, this is what we're all about and what we're trying to acknowledge through this sexual health series is how do all of these topics and areas of our life impact our mental health, our physical health, or are impacted by our mental and physical health? And he was able to offer some insight into a lot of that. Yeah. Starting a family can be, I mean, for anyone in any circumstance, as we've learned before in the parenting series, it's always a huge deal. So (laughs) learning from this perspective was so insightful. It's difficult even if you aren't having a difficult time getting pregnant. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think about when I had kids, which was 25 years ago or 20 years ago, And it's so different now. And I love that the two of you are able to think really deeply about how to care for yourself and kind of prepare yourself for it. Mm -hmm. I think back when I had kids, it was just like, you decide you want to have kids and then you try to have kids. (laughs) Um, And there's so much more information now and preparation and information that I think this experience can be so much better. Yeah. For many families, as we learned today, especially, it's, uncharted territory. We know so much more than we've ever known before, and we have so much science behind it that we're just figuring out as we go still, but in very different ways. And, you know, for me, for us, we're not sure if we do. We're always going back and forth. Do we? Don't we? Are we ready? You know, we're getting older now, so it's something we have to think about more frequently. Freeze your eggs! (laughs) But... But also, it's like, if we do, what? how would we do that? Would we foster? We have so many friends who foster. We have friends who have adopted. We have friends who have done IVF for various reasons. And, you know, it's just, we've learned from all of these experiences. But for me, it's like decision paralysis. But, you know, for others, hopefully, more information does help. <laughs> well, and we've never had so many options for whatever your circumstances are. Mm-hmm. So with those options, you may make a decision on what you want on how you want to start your family, but nothing in your life previously has prepared you for what you're going to go through because Mm -hmm. this is all really new. For real. I like that he talked about how you can make choices for yourself in your 20s. If you choose to have kids in your 30s, for example, you can make choices 10 years ahead of time thinking about what you're eating and what you're putting into your body and how you're caring for your mental health so that when you are ready to have kids, your body's ready to go through that process and care for your baby while you're carrying it. Yeah, it ties into all the other topics we've talked about on the podcast. And exactly what we're trying to drive home is, you know, it's holistic. It's all connected. It's all intersectional. Yeah. And some people who are struggling to get pregnant think that it's their fault, as he mentioned. This all impacts our mental health and 
getting ahead mm-hmm. of it and being as much as you can, nothing will prepare you, but taking care of ourselves. Then when we go into a process that's as stressful or emotional as this one, we're a little bit more equipped. Yeah. And just like with our financial series, we learned, you know, even if you don't know what you want, you can start investing in yourself mm-hmm. in so many different ways, whether it's, I'm just going to make sure I'm staying as healthy as I can be. I'm staying at my, you know, my healthy weight. I'm trying my best to eat healthy and stay active and just take care of my body. And that's going to help you not just if you do want to start a family down the road, but just in general. So like we learned in the financial series, if you start that bank account for your future family and you end up not starting that family, you still have that money. (laughs) So you can use it for something else. (laughs) And you still have your health. Yeah. Yeah. So you're still healthy. Yeah. Because there are also a lot of expensive options. Yes. When we talk about family planning. Yeah. And so tucking a little bit of money away in your 20s, even if you're not sure if you do want to have a family, just means that you're going to have some money in your 30s to do whatever you want with. But at yeah. least you know that you have that covered. And you did your best <laughs> to plan yeah. and prepare. Yeah. So what surprised you both most today about our conversation? I think what I was most surprised about is the fact that there are so many different routes you can take mm-hmm. and that it can take years and years and years. And I started thinking, I guess I wasn't really surprised about that, but it really got me thinking about, I remember when I was pregnant with Max, a friend of mine was struggling with infertility and it was really hard for her to be supportive of me having a child And that was hard on me because I wanted my friend to be there for me, but also I wanted to be there for her. You know, it was like just the sight of me, I think was really hard for her. And so, and I knew that and I understood that and I was sensitive to it, but I didn't understand like how impactful that can be when you're dealing with that for years and years and years. And I think it's one of those things that unless you go through it yourself, you can't possibly know how hurtful and harmful and other people's actions can be. And I wish I would have thought more deeply about that to be a better support for her. Yeah, Actions and language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is something we talked about today too. And that I think about often is how to be sensitive to people who are going through something like this because- In general, we see a lot of images of the perfect pregnancy and the perfect, you know, newborn situation where the baby's quite easy. And we see the highlight reels and of how people are going through this process on social media and in different ways. Mm -hmm. But the reality is a lot different for most people. And it's important to acknowledge that when it comes to the people we love and just letting your friends and family members know that you're there for them and that you're open to talking about it because their voices aren't always heard. The voices that are heard are usually the ones who are just having a lovely pregnancy or getting (laughs) pregnant really easily because we want to celebrate those moments Mm because they're so wonderful. And share them with everyone, yeah. Yeah, but the people who are struggling with infertility may be kind of hiding and staying quiet because they're not ready to talk about it and they don't know that people are going to say the right things or be open when they do. Exactly. No, that just made me have a really interesting revelation as to why I might resonate more with Twitter versus Instagram or Facebook or anything like that because it's kind of the opposite over there. Whereas Instagram, you have all the highlights. Here's all the best parts of my life. Everything's going great because that's what you want to celebrate. I love how, how you said that because yeah, it's like, I'm so excited about this. Whereas Twitter is more of the, I am really struggling with this right now. And then you have hundreds of people piling on to send some support. And then you get trolls everywhere, of course. But it's like you get all that attention when people are sharing their darkest moments, which is really interesting to me. So maybe just finding those proper communities for yourself. Yeah. And there's definitely access to more communities Yes. Now to get involved in and have those conversations if you need to. Like with everything, make sure you have the right people around you, you know in person, online, whenever you can control that, of course. Yeah. So I guess I just looking back at my younger self in my 20s, you know, I think I was sensitive and I think I was kind and and loving, but it's so interesting (laughs) how much wisdom you gain as you get older, information that you gain that you wish you would have put into practice when you were younger. So yeah. And we're still learning every day. It's 
Yeah. Even after all of the stuff we've done on this podcast, I still have days where I'm like, I cannot support right now. I, I don't even yeah. know what to say. And that's yes. okay, too. I feel bad about it. I'm like, I should know better. <laughs> but that's all right. Just do your best. Yeah, but we've also learned to take good care of yourself, yes. right? Be gentle with yourself. And you can't always be there to support others. If you can, sure. But you might be going through your own situation, too. Exactly. What surprised you, Sean? I think, like you said, all the different options that are out there, you know, we knew about them, but I don't think we realized just how comprehensive they can be sometimes or just how, you know, freezing parts of yourself can be, <laughs> how long term that could be, even if you're not, you know, planning, maybe you don't do anything with that, but it's there if you want that option down the road. And I think that's probably the most surprising for me in a good way. Yeah, like a little a little insurance policy. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah, I I, did, I had never thought about um, freezing in advance yeah. of something like aging out of being able to have a child or something like that. But what 20-year-old has 10 or $20,000 to think in ahead of time? I'm curious about that. Yeah, it would be nice to see maybe some support out there for that financially because that's the biggest thing young people face right now. That's why they're not starting families is because even if you're you know finding surrogate, that like you like you said, one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars just to get started, and then that surprised me too. Okay, <laughs> so this that, whole but... <laughs> this whole episode surprised me. Yeah, but I knew that it's just uh, one thing that you really need to keep in mind is that's not the only expense when having a, a child. <laughs> it's a lifelong investment too. What surprised me most about our conversation today was just how many resources there are out there and passionate individuals like Doctor L who are ready to help you because like he said, he has to remind himself that nobody coming into his office wants to be there. And that must be a difficult thing, especially if you're excited to help. You know, you have to kind of read the room, I guess. But I was excited and surprised to learn that there are so many resources and passionate doctors and support people who are ready to help. And options for you to educate yourself on this topic if you're interested. And this is just one way to get started by listening to all of the insight and wisdom that Dr. L has to share. So please, everyone grab a cup of tea and enjoy. Health is harmony. When you're aligned to everything you believe in is when you feel that harmony and you feel peace. Trying to get to the root cause of things. There is just so much to learn. Can you be present in those moments in your life that mean the most? Because health, it's personal. Welcome, Dr. Leanderis. We're so thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you today. You wear many hats in the world of sexual health, reproductive health, and fertility. Sexual health and sexual relationships impact many areas of our lives, our mental health, our physical health, and how we envision our future. As an expert in this important field, people rely on you to impact the quality of their lives in many ways. Please tell us a little about yourself and your experience in this field of sexual health. So I'm Mark Leanderis. I'm, uh, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. So what that means is, you know, I did my four years of medical school. I did four years of delivering babies and regular OBGYN. And then I did uh, three years as a reproductive endocrinology fellow, basically focusing on hormonal disorders of women and fertility treatments and fertility preservation. After that, to become a reproductive endocrinologist, you have to sit for a board exam. And then you have to, two, two years later, you have to sit for an oral exam. So in many ways, I'm kind of a nerd amongst doctors. And uh, one of the things that drew me to this field as early as a medical student is I, I liked the many facets of it. It's kind of funny for me to say this, but uh, as a doctor, I don't really like sick people. So I don't really <laughs> take care of sick people, the occasional sick person. But this is a field with uh, defined beginnings and ends, and defined outcomes, and it's a field that's rapidly advanced and advancing. The only field that's advanced more than uh, fertility therapy is cancer therapy, right? Now, obviously in cancer, oncologists have you know life and death and we have birth, mm. right? And it's really the best, most wonderful outcome for somebody who really wants to have a child to give them uh, as an outcome. It's also, you know, we have our own fertility roller coaster. There's people that don't succeed. 
and caring for those people and uh, helping them navigate that feeling of loss and uh, changing their life plans is something that we do as well. The science within this field is amazing. It touches on uh, some of the most advanced genetics out there. So that was very interesting to me. And then then as a reproductive endocrinologist, you also get to do surgery, everything from removing large tumors from the uterus, which I don't do anymore, to removing small tumors within the uterine cavity operating um, through a telescope. So the other part of this field that is really thrilling is the social implications of it and all the ethical issues that come up. Hmm. You know, in 1991, when I entered medical school, we did not have egg freezing online. We weren't helping LGBTQ couples have babies. It wasn't considered ethical to do some of the things that we do now within the embryology lab, such as testing embryos for chromosomes for Down syndrome and, and not transferring those embryos, or even as simple allowing somebody who has two boys to do IVF electively to have a girl. Okay. So this field is an amazing field that continues to advance and it's always uh, developing and changing. And, and a lot of that development and change is kind of in line with the way our society has changed. Um, so I think you started the question as far as uh, sexual health. I mean, sexual health is kind of a broad term. The way I kind of would interact with that is somebody's sexual health or sexual well-being intersects sometimes with their desire for family building. And we may or may not in our 20s ever think we want to have children, but oftentimes by the time we get to our late 30s, that's changed. But taking care of yourself all the way through makes a, uh, makes a big difference. And uh, I see young women all the time who are choosing to be egg donors. And uh, part of my kind of consult with them involves talking to them about being fiercely protective of their sexual well-being, and they're making sure they don't get an infection of their fallopian tubes, making sure they don't get an infection of their cervix that, that could lead to a precancerous cervical lesion, and understanding that men, of which I'm one of them, bear barely any responsibility from the complications of pregnancy, and understanding that they need to protect themselves, and uh, the only way they can really protect their sexual well-being for reproduction is to only have protected intercourse if they're having transvaginal intercourse. That's beautifully said. And there are so many conversations that we could have about a lot of what you mentioned. And it's all so fascinating. And I wonder if there was something that sparked you to make that transition into reproductive endocrinology aside from I don't want to say aside from how cool the medicine is, but or the science is, but that very well may be why. <laughs> so in medical school, you go through rotation. So my first rotation was surgery, which I thought was amazing, uh, but it didn't really suit me. And then it was medicine, and then it was psychiatry, and then it was pedi- pediatrics, and I actually always wanted to be a pediatrician. And then it was OBGYN, and uh, so my very last rotation. I basically spent one week with the reproductive endocrinologist and I was like, this is who I want to be. So what sparked my interest is the intersection of science, the social implications of it, and the uh, um, ethics involved with it. So for myself, I mean, I was a history and a biochemistry major in college. So where the lines intersect are important. And within reproductive endocrinology, there's a lot of lines that intersect. We have people who you know, are trying not to get pregnant. We are people who are trying desperately to get pregnant. We have people who are menopausal. And now we have people who can't get pregnant without mm-hmm. medical assistance. And we have people who are trying to preserve their fertility because they have cancer or perhaps preserve their fertility because it's elective. And then we have people walking through the door with genetic syndromes that don't want to have a child with the same genetic syndrome. So it's really like, it's been an amazing ride. And I never would have thought that this is where I would be. Because when I first did reproductive endocrinology, it was uh, more surgery and less IVF laboratory. And now it's very, very heavily towards the IVF laboratory and a lot less surgery. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's interesting that you can go through all of those different rotations and then just find one that just feels like the right path for you. When we're talking about intersections, we're using our sexual health series to find the connection between all of these different topics and have multiple conversations. And 
connecting aspects of our personal relationship with our well-being to our sexual or reproductive health. And I wonder what kind of connections do you see in your work between the patients that you assist, the topic of reproductive health, and then their overall well-being as far as mental health or physical health? So one of the questions further down is what are the common myths about fertility? And uh, you can be the healthiest person you can be eating weight and everything. And you still can experience fertility challenges. On the other side, you can be somebody who is struggling to just have a regular menstrual cycle. And there are significant lifestyle modifications, such as your eating habit and exercise regimen that can change things. For men, and we don't want to leave them out, you know, lifestyle choices make a difference. Obesity, age, smoking, which damages DNA, alcohol consumption, all those things affect the one out of a million of millions of sperm that's going to generate the conception that that results in your child. So overall health in many ways is a reflection of our bodies, but in some aspects of our field, there's some things you can't change. It's a really significant message that the female biological clock is absolutely real. The single greatest predictor for outcome. So natural conception for a 25-year-old per month, let's say absolutely no problems for her or, and it would be about 25%. Everybody thinks it's 100%, but it's just not. But natural conception per month for somebody who is 40 is less than 5%. That's a dramatic drop-off. And by 45, it would be well less than 1%. So women have very smartly likely put in by our biology, a clock that stops their reproductive capability. Because remember, as little as 150 years ago, most people had passed away by the time Mm -hmm. they were 50, right? And it is work to be pregnant. And it's work to raise a child, right? So (laughs) times have changed now dramatically. So we can expect to live 80s, 90s and 100s. But that biological clock hasn't changed. So I, I really... You know, I stress to everyone who asks me questions just to consider the fact that if you want to have a family, you need to be thinking about a plan when you're 30 and making a plan probably by the time you're 35. And for guys, there is a male biological clock. It starts to tick louder at 50, certainly tick louder at 60. Even though men can generate pregnancies at 50 and 60, some of the childhood outcomes um, of syndromes and diseases are increased. So there is even a move afoot to encourage men to freeze sperm proactively prior to the age of 40. Interesting. Is there something that a woman can do or should do in her 20s if she knows that she wants to have a child? We usually don't think about it. I don't think really seriously until we're ready to have a child, but is there something you can do in advance? Yeah, certainly in advance. I mean, you need to go to your annual exams with your provider and discuss at that point in time, whether you're having regular menstrual cycles, or if you're on the, if you're on some form of contraception, understand that while that contraception protects you from pregnancy, it doesn't protect you from the wart virus, the herpes virus, chlamydia, gonorrhea, hepatitis, and HIV. So unless you're in a committed, tested relationship to only have vaginal relations with a condom or with protection of some kind. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing I can say. And the other issue comes down to overall well-being, mental health and physical health all intersect. So working towards your healthiest weight and eating well is something that's important and it's hard to do. And uh, if you don't feel emotionally and mentally well, it's even harder to do. And our young people's lives are far, far more complicated than they were even for me 30 years ago. And the amount of inputs, negative influences out there to see that can make you feel bad about yourself is millions of times greater than 30 years ago. So choosing to disconnect and choosing self-care and uh, um, choosing to make sure you understand that you're a unique human and and you're not going to necessarily fit into this box of somebody you see on Instagram Mm -hmm. or Facebook. I mean, I really feel like... um, Social media 
from everybody posting, you know, their babies. If you're not getting pregnant, it can be very harmful. Everybody's body type is different. And we all have to kind of also learn to love ourselves and embrace ourselves in order to move forward to being a parent and understanding that, you know, you can be a parent through lots of different pathways. On that note, you brought up some really important points about the biological clock and our overall well-being, mental health, physical health, and how complicated young people's lives currently are, which is absolutely true. What advice might you give someone who might be worried about that biological clock but doesn't feel in any way that they would be ready to have a family anytime soon? Yeah, so I think if you're in your 20s, making sure you've gone to the doctor and uh, following Good health practices makes a difference. And thinking about things that can negatively affect your fertility as far as substances and, and so on. In regards to if you're in your 30s and you're, uh, or you're somebody who was born with ovaries, I think you want to consider, should I think of freezing my eggs? Freezing my eggs is somewhere around an eight dollars to $10,000 commitment. It requires about a three-week commitment with the fertility clinic, but your eggs can be frozen for you know 10 years. 15 years, maybe 20 years, you know, we've only had egg freezing approved for fertility preservation since 2014. So there's not that much track record on it, but uh, we've been doing it for many, many years for people with cancer. There was a a switch flipped in 2014 that allowed us to freeze eggs with high success. Because if you think about it, an egg is one cell. And when you freeze something that's mostly water, slowly, If you get ice crystals in it, what happens? It breaks and it's one cell and you're done. So there was a technique uh, um, basically curated by Italian researchers that allowed us to take an egg and actually kind of trade out water for sugar molecules and then plunge that egg instead of taking three hours to freeze an egg from basically body temperature down to minus 197 degrees in less than a second. You literally just plunge the egg and survival from egg freezing, you know, is somewhere around uh, 60 to 80% now. And there's thousands upon thousands of babies born that way. So considering freezing your eggs, if you're kind of over 30 as a, as a woman and for somebody born, born with testicles, by the time you're 40, you may want to consider cryopreserving your sperm. You know, we don't know what life holds. As we age in our modern world, thankfully, cancer is very, very survivable. But everything from testicular cancer to ovarian cancer and breast cancer can affect somebody's fertility potential as they age. So we have the ability in 2021 to keep the, our family building doors open well into our 40s and early 50s. So if you have the bandwidth, the resources and the support from your family, you know, I think you should think about that. One of the best things about this podcast for us is all the amazing and insightful people we've met. Throughout each of our series, we've seen many common threads. That's why we created the Health It's Personal Inspiration Line to celebrate our unique perspectives and let others around us know that we get it too. We teamed up with artist Cloud Ramke to help bring these common threads to life. We've all dealt with challenges in our lives that make us stronger. Hence, our new favorite saying, thanks for the trauma. We make sure to remind our listeners and friends that you're not alone and that it's always a judgment-free zone because that's where the best conversations start. Our designs are on t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies, water bottles, coffee mugs, stickers, and so much more. These are great gifts for friends, loved ones, educators, caretakers, and advocates to help show your people that you care about their health and well-being. Head over to bonfire.com slash thehippodcast, our website, or our show notes for links to the merchandise, and stay tuned for future inspirational designs and messages too. That's really great advice because even if you're not sure what you want to do, it's really good to think as soon as you can just about all of these options. I think that's extremely helpful. And on that note, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you have seen firsthand when it comes to the importance of connecting to one's partner when it comes to family planning and the relationship between the ability to just start that family, even if, you know, like what we've all talked about today, if we're not sure yet. So I guess just that connection between you and those loved ones in your life, how can you start having these conversations? I think that if you're in a committed relationship with someone you love, and you're starting to feel that little niggle that you want to 
have children, you need to make sure you're sure you bring that up. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I have absolutely seen relationships end over that. Most part, they don't. Sometimes the other partner might need a push, but it's certainly a discussion because uh, your life will dramatically change, mostly for the better when you have children as part of your life. But uh, um, it is a uh, a lot more work than I think anybody ever expects. Great. Thank and, you for uh, saying that, by the way. I feel like no one ever said that before. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's... Uh, yeah, it's no uh, joke, man. <laughs> it is It is absolutely no joke. And, uh, you know, on the other side, I think we've all probably seen the Grinch that stole Christmas. But your heart <laughs> will grow three times larger. <laughs> right. I'm Greek ancestry. And I don't know if you're aware that, but the Greeks have many different words for love. They have love of a partner, they have love of the world, they have love of a thing, but love of a child is different and it's something that is completely unexpected. So I think that uh, what it means to be a parent is, you know, stylized and idealized in all our media and so on. But until you're up at two o'clock in the morning with somebody who's throwing up on you, <laughs> right? And you're not, not doing this, but you're taking care of them. You don't really get it, right? Mm -hmm. And the other part of the story is there's those special moments that nobody else will ever have except you when you're a parent. So it's really, I mean, I have 10-year-old and 7-year-old, so I'm not even there yet. Okay. But uh, um, it's been an uh, amazing, eye-opening journey from somebody who thought that it would be easy, and it is not. And I've been saying this for years, and I learned it from my 3-year-old. You get what you get. <laughs> and you don't, and you don't get upset. <laughs> yeah. You get what you get and you don't get upset, right? I have um patients that are pursuing pathways either through donor sperm or donor egg, and they are like have this impression that they're like genetically programming the child they're gonna have. And uh um, <laughs> and I really try to reground them the fact that as humans we have fifty-two thousand genes, twenty-six thousand from the male side. And 26,000 from the female side combined to make this new human to be. But who gets what traits and how things cross over is completely random. And it's not 50-50 either. So if somebody has siblings, you're not exactly like your siblings. You might even look like them, but you probably don't act like them. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are siblings that just don't even look alike. And we know they have the same parents. So, so you just don't know what you're going to get. So you know, another kind of vernacular I use is to have children is to embrace a future of which you have no control. <laughs> I like that. That's hard for a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that is. Yeah. So <laughs> as you talk to your partner about having a baby, right, <laughs> you also have to fasten your seatbelt and think of your future. And I have a lot of people who are really stressed about their age to have children. And uh, I think we have to sometimes pause our own ageism in that. So for me, you know, I'm grandfather age and I have little kid, but uh, I hope to live healthy and well into my 80s and 90s, which should give me a time to launch these kids well into their 20s and 30s, which is your responsibility as a parent. And, you know, there are people who are in their 40s that are better equipped to raise children because they're mature. They knew who, who they are. They have the financial resources and they have the time to raise a child that re requires a lot of work in our modern world compared to somebody who's in their early 20s. So just take it step by step. And if your partner doesn't want to have kids, that's going to be an ongoing discussion. But for a lot of people, their desire to have a child at some point becomes something they can't keep in check anymore. Yeah, that's so great. And education is such a big part of so many aspects of our lives. And it sounds like you really educate the people that you work with. Would you mind explaining to our listeners the challenges that impact the people that you work with and how kind of each person's journey looks a little bit different? Yeah. Uh, historically, we had heterosexual couples that would come to our office, right? Now we have many different parts of, our, of humanity that come to our office for fertility preservation or family building. And, and there's lots of different hurdles and struggles. And I really don't like the word journey. It's actually kind of more like a trek. <laughs> a star trek and you have to be you have to be flexible flexible i always remind myself that nobody ever wants to come to my office nobody ever wants 
to admit that they're having problems having a child. So I think one of the hurdles for heterosexual couples and particularly the women, because they feel like they're, it's always their fault, even though about 30% of the time it's not that there's male factor involved, that they did something wrong, that it's their fault. And I think that the vast majority of the time, this is just the biology of your situation. So I think uh, one of the hurdles is understanding that if you're not pregnant within a year and you're under 30, there might be something wrong. If you're not pregnant in six months and you're 35, there might be something wrong and you need to seek help. And I think one of the things that's always heartbreaking to me is the person who's had two or three miscarriages and it's been a year or two years. And uh, pregnancy loss is something that as a society, it still lives in some dark corner of a closet somewhere. And I truly wish that we could just understand that 15 to 20, if you're over 35, 30% of pregnancies that start end as a pregnancy loss and just kind of putting that out there so women can support each other. So I think the hurdles that come out there are some degree of self-loathing or, or self-guilt that, that they can't get pregnant or they can't give their partner a child and that they're never going to have a baby because they've had a miscarriage here and there, which is usually most commonly not true. There is help out there. For our single moms-to-be and single dads-to-be, their hurdle is actually maybe a little bit more you know, psychosocial than biological because we can help single moms-to-be and single dads-to-be but they have to kind of envision a life as a single parent. And is it okay? Is it fair to the child? Is it fair to the child to not have a father? Is it fair to the child not to have a mother? How am I going to navigate work and life and so on? How are people going to look at me differently? So, you know, as part of our practice, we have two social workers that basically they talk about psychosocial aspects of family building all the time. And uh, that's real. For our LGBTQ plus parents to be, you know, there's a lot of things to think about. In an ideal world, and I get this, I still get this question, you know, can you combine our eggs together? Can you combine our sperm together? And the answer is no, right? Mm-hmm. Hard no. While we've done it in some mice, we're not doing it, doing it in humans, and you don't want to be the person we practice on. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to need to find a donor. Mm-hmm. And that's either going to be, you know, an egg source or a sperm source. And, you know, if you're an LGBTQ plus parent to be, that's this amazing person that's going to help you. But who is that person? And is your child going to want to know that person in the future? In fact, we know from a study in 2014 that 70% of donor-conceived persons seek out more information in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's probably best to find a sperm source or an egg source that is willing to be in contact in the future, or ideally that you can even meet beforehand. So you have that family building story. And I think on another side of the coin, we have fertility preservation patients. So to be somebody born with testes with testicular cancer or a woman with breast cancer, the fear that your family building opportunities can be taken away is is great. So exercising your reproductive right to have talk to your oncologist and say, I want to freeze my gametes. I want to freeze my sperm and freeze my eggs. I understand it might not be a guarantee, but at least it leaves me an option to have a biologically linked child out there. So walking through the door, I think, uh, is a big first step, but understanding that uh, there's a lot of things you can do in 2021, 22, 23, and there's just going to be more. I think some of the saddest things that I see are people who just waited too long. Women who are perimenopausal or postmenopausal, there are some newer technologies that allow us to rehabilitate the ovary, but it's pretty low chances for success. So uh, uh, talk about it, educate yourself, and taking that first step to ask for help is a big step. Right. So you've also done a lot of work helping people who might be, it might be a little too late, or they might not have their own biological children as an option. What other options are there for them? Or how do you how do you help them navigate that? Primarily it applies to women born with ovaries and uteri because the egg aging cycle is real. So if a woman is not producing healthy eggs anymore, or if someone born with a uterus is not producing healthy eggs anymore, then they would choose to go ahead and work with either their partner as a sperm source or perhaps a sperm donor. And then they would need an, an egg donor. Okay. So um, the vast majority of 
20 year olds have a healthy egg pool. So that's where most of these eggs come from, but they could still be pregnant. The uterus is an amazing organ. It's very like plastic and flexible. Listen, it grows from being the size of a pear to being bigger than two basketballs, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's crazy. So that being said, they can still be pregnant and they can still, still deliver their child. Okay. And it is their child. And, you know, one of the intersections that we don't talk about a lot is the intersection of genetics and environment. We all know that if we smoke, we get lung cancer. Who carries the baby defines who that baby's going to be. So, you know, we all know from extreme examples of women who are pregnant who are using drugs or using alcohol or perhaps aren't in good mental health. Their child that's born has other poorer health outcomes. So this woman who maybe her eggs don't work, she's going to nurture that child and do all the things that she knows to do in pregnancy that we know to advise her to do in pregnancy to, to bring that child to its healthiest life. And it only she made their child. So we don't know what makes our personality. Personally, I don't think it's the horoscope or the year you were born in, <laughs> but it may have a lot to do with what happened in pregnancy as that early brain was developing and what it was experiencing, how happy that person was carrying you, how much sleep they got, how much stress they were under, what they were eating and all those other things. So there's this whole field called epigenetics where basically the environment affects gene expression. So what's the most powerful environmental influence you ever had in your life is when you were grown from a little ball of cells seven or eight pounds within the uterus, right? It was a completely contained environment. The other part of that story is birth to five defines a lot of who you're going to be as a person. So this intersection of, for that person that's grieving about the fact that their eggs aren't functional anymore, they can still be a parent and that's going to be their child. I'll never forget, this is 1996, I uh, did a surgery on a woman at uh, National Naval Medical Center in uh, D.C., and uh, we had just fixed something in her uterus, and she was trying to get pregnant on her own, and she was in the recovery room, and she said, hey, doc, I got to go. I have to go pick up my daughter. My heart sank, mm. and I said, well, Susan, you know, we're trying to get you pregnant, but you don't have any children yet. She goes, no, you idiot. I adopted my daughter, and I have to pick her up at school. <laughs> and and I worked so much harder for her than most of these other people out there. And she basically <laughs> spun me around and I'm like, we'll have you out of here in 10 minutes, right? <laughs> so, um, so there's also different pathways to parenthood, right? Adoption mm -hmm. is a very viable pathway to family building. So if that's something you want to do. And the other truth is there's almost 8 billion of us on the planet. Not everybody needs to kind of go to the ends that many people go to have a child. You can still be a good citizen and help a lot of people and choose not to have bring a little baby into the world and do other things that are, are really helpful to our world. And, and there's a lot of kids out there if you want to interact and intersect with children's lives that need help in many ways. So parenting is not necessary for everybody. And if you feel like maybe using donated material doesn't work for you, I think it's okay to embrace that and move forward. Right. Absolutely. What would you say are some ways that we just as people and as a community can do or say or not say to people going through this difficult process to kind of be sensitive toward the people that we love as they're on their trek, as you say? <laughs> you can say journey. <laughs> I think that's a depends on the relationships. It's pretty personal. But I think that uh, um, it's always nice to ask an open-ended question. How are you doing? Just if you ever want to talk about your fertility journey, let me know. If you're somebody who's, who has a child and somebody kind of approaches you and says your baby's so cute, and then you ask you know, the question back, do you have children and they don't, that can kind of be tough. So I think that's something that we all need to be careful with. And I'm not sure I have the right exact words, but we want to be aware of that. And the other thing I think that I already said is to understand that this can be very hard. So if you know somebody's trying to have a child, please don't ever say, you know, what are you waiting for? 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. never say that. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're suffering from fertility challenges, whether you're heterosexual, LGBT plus, or single, or maybe you, you did cancer therapy, you're trying to use your frozen eggs. It's always tough and it's expensive and you may or may not have full family support. So I think just remembering to be kind and try to use your empathic superpowers to understand where they are and understand that it's okay not to provide an answer, but just to provide support. You know, one of the things I say in my practice, not infrequently, when I used to see patients in person, it'd be somebody sitting right across my desk. I always try to engage their partner. I'd say, well, what do you think? And invariably the male partner would say, well, whatever she wants. And I would say, you know what? That's not helpful. (laughs) You're her partner. You're her partner. And she values your opinion. And if you agree with what she's she wants to do, then you can parrot that back. But if you don't agree, that's okay too. But your voice matters because you're going to be raising the baby too. So I think that understanding that there should be some valuable people in your life, if you're going through any kind of fertility treatment that uh, you can rely on, and then understanding that sometimes all you can do is give somebody a hug and tell them you love them and that you're there for them. Because we don't always have the ability to choose what our life is going to give us. We don't always have the ability to choose what life gives us, but we do choose the people around us. And those people around us sometimes just have to let us be sad, but give us support. We can't fix everything. Yeah, that's incredible advice. Besides all of this amazing work that you do, you're also the founder of Gay Parents to Be. Would you tell us a bit about what that foundation does? Sure. So Gay Parents to Be is a starting point for the LGBTQ plus community. So when we went through our journey back in uh, um, <laughs> you 2000, can call it a trek. <laughs> 2007 to 2009, just to get the point of making embryos, here I am, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, but it was hard. And then we didn't have our child till 2011. It's four years later, right? And this is now 15, 20 years ago. There is a lot of lack of information on, on where to start. And, you know, I think that it's great to get advice from your cousin or your friend or so on and so on. But uh, um, so Gay Parents to Be Origin was meant as giving people a reliable, safe place to gather information for their family building goals, whether you're lesbian, gay, trans, non-binary, just where do you start? And Within that platform, we're providing resources. And the, my medical office, so Army of Connecticut, yes, we will work with somebody who's in our local area. But through Gay Parents to Be, you know, I've spoken to people on the West Coast. I've even spoken to people in Australia and so on. Because worldwide, there's not always LGBTQ competency on where to start. So it was really a passion project. And I want to thank my medical partners in in the office who were wholly supportive of it. You know, I'm in a unique situation in that I'm the founder, the medical director, but I'm also LGBTQ plus. And I think it's provided a little bit different look and feel to our practice. I mean, I'm really proud to say that with the help of our CEO, we're like one of two to four practices that is a human rights campaign, healthcare quality leader. Like we got a hundred on the score, which basically means we treat our patients well, we've educated ourselves and we treat our staff well, as far as, you know, understanding that they can come to the table as who they are. But uh, I think that um, gay parents to be is uh, something that is meant to be a resource for people considering family building as part of our larger community. The other group that I've become more active is gays with kids. So, well, now that you have the baby, what do you do, right? <laughs> and where do you live? And, and what are you going to tell your children? How do you talk to your child? When are they going to start asking about their donor and so on? And uh, so it's for our community, if you think about it, and this is shown by the Family Equality Council survey in 2019, for our community, 
20 years ago, people were in a heterosexual relationship, had children, and then came out. That's how they became parents. And now millennials are not going to follow that pathway. They're going to use assisted reproductive technologies or adoption to bring children into their homes and live their true selves. So it is a dramatic change. And supporting those young people energizes me to keep working and understanding that it is hard. You know, I tell my dads to be that you're faced with thousands of decisions that nobody in the history of the world ever had to face for having this baby, right? It's much harder for you. Yes, everybody says, oh, you know, it's just going to work. Well, it's not going to work. And it's $200,000. Gay male couple to have one baby using an egg donor, a surrogate, a fertility clinic, a lawyer, a surrogacy agency, egg donor agency, and so on. So like, and there's nothing in their experiences ever prepared them for that. So I'm somebody who's passionate about helping people. And through my own pathway to parenthood, I just saw that this was a gap. And that led me to want to move forward with gay parents to be. And I had the support of my partners to do that as well. Thank you so much for that work as well. It's very much appreciated. And like you said, it, it fills that huge need that we had. Yeah. There's a many resources out there now, and I, I encourage people to look at Gay Friends to be and, you know, a lot of other valuable family building sites for our community. It has been so amazing speaking with you today, Dr. L. We're so thankful for your knowledge, your care, and your insight. And I think this is really helpful for a lot of our listeners. So we appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I do think it was personal and hopefully this is helpful for your listeners. And uh, I'd be happy to talk more about granular details. We were kind of up in the skies a lot, but uh, (laughs) there's just a lot to do. And the intersection of family building and sexual health is very real. And people should know that there's resources out there and there's passionate professionals to help them. And with our new Zoom world, you can access passionate professionals wherever you live. Exactly. So So incredible. Yes, thank you. All right. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Health It's Personal. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts for bonus episodes and new releases every Wednesday. Please listen, subscribe, engage, and send us topics we can explore that would help you on your journey. Because health, it's personal.